Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. It's to happen when we go into the wilderness and or nature. And by that, when we go into something that is relatively unknown, especially for children who maybe have a limited experience being out in the wild. And it's really interesting because it it mirrors the rite of passage or the initiation arc, the hero's journey arc, where you step out and you go into someplace unknown. So you're leaving what's known and crossing a threshold into the unknown, which is like stage one. And then there's this whole initiation experience that you go through where you have to figure things out and things are uncertain. You don't really quite know how to respond because there's just a lot of different things coming at you. And it it can usually be uncomfortable. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be fearful or afraid or terrified, but sometimes that's part of it. Facing your fears and facing challenges are, are definitely part of the experience. But then the big piece is to then accomplish something and then move into the third stage, which is the integration. Like how do you take that experience and bring that back into your everyday life? And you'll be forever changed because you're no longer that person that first stepped into nature. And that initiation arc of like separation and initiation or education, and then the integration part, all of those pieces are something that's really hardwired into us. Because this is what we go through all through our lives. Pretty much any time we're in a situation where we're feeling uncomfortable, unsettled, things aren't quite right, we don't know what's happening, we're a little bit anxious, we're wondering what's going on, It's usually because there's a part of our lives that is going into that process. The initiate, we're being initiated into something. So it might be that you're being initiated if you're a young person to saying, Oh, I have a girlfriend for the first time, or I have a best friend for the first time, or Hey, my family, we got a puppy and I'm taking care of it. And so there's a lot of firsts there. Oh, my puppy chewed up my best shoes. That's a first. (laughs) And or, oh, my puppy tore apart the living room when I was supposed to be watching her. And now I'm in trouble with my family. And that's a first for you. And at the same time, there's, oh, my puppy sleeps with me and then learned how to roll over and how to fetch and do different things. So that's just like one example. Another example could be that we go from elementary school to middle school. And suddenly we're in with a lot of older kids that we never really had known about. Or for any of us listening to this, you might be in an initiation where you're thinking, oh, I'm a forest school educator and I work with preschool and kindergarten students. And suddenly my forest school director has now told me that I will be working with the third, fourth and fifth grades in a special new program on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so suddenly you're now in a new environment. You're You're going from what is known, which is like, hanging out with these kids while they explore butterflies and play in the stream and all that to suddenly being in a very different 
group and a different experience and going, all right, how do I navigate this? What is going on? And it's uncomfortable because you don't quite know how can you succeed. And so this coming of age idea or initiation idea is something that has been around for all of us. It's just part of our human experience of how we grow. And at the same time, the coming of age part for young boys and girls going from being a young a boy to a young man or a girl to a young woman, that, that is a particularly powerful time that we're going to discuss right now and get into that and see how these nature experiences can really support that kind of process in a way that will make the life of that individual a lot better, potentially. And I always like to throw in those caveats, like potentially, because there's always exceptions. Some people, they'll go into the wilderness, get the symbology of all these different experiences, and then bring them back, integrate them, and they're like, things are great. Then there's always someone that's just, yeah, it's in the wilderness, and that doesn't apply to anything in my life. And again, that's just how it is. There's always those exceptions. But for the most part, I've seen it happen over and over and over again, and not just in the program, but from letters and phone calls and emails and so forth that parents have told me over my 35 years of doing this work. So I, I'm really standing on not just, oh, I had a couple of anecdotal nice things. I'm standing on a volume of time doing this, doing rite of passage for young people and their parents over and over again and seeing the benefits. So that's where I'm coming from. So let's talk for a second about what is going on for children when they are beginning to enter into this sort of transition. And for children, they, they've spent their whole lives with their parents and their parents have basically done a lot of things for them. If they go on a hike, the parent will grab their raincoat for them so they don't have to remember. They will, the parents will bring snacks so that they don't have to be responsible for that. There's very little responsibility on those children, which is obviously very real and very uh, important and understandable. But as they get older, they start to be able to begin to, how do I say this? they're expected to start picking up some of these things. And that means they have to remember something like, oh, get bringing my shoes that can get muddy or bringing food or whatever it is. And all those things that suddenly go from being cared and taken care of by your parents to suddenly you being responsible can feel like a really big burden for them. The same is true for like chores or homework suddenly gets to be a thing. So for grade after grade, your season, your, your homework is just really pretty simple and quick and not really that substantial because you don't need to be. And then all of a sudden there's this little turn right as they get into middle school where that homework starts to ramp up. And for, if you're in fifth grade or sixth, sixth grade, seventh grade, you can just suddenly feel like, oh my gosh, my backpack is now filled with all these books that I have to bring home every day because I have stuff I have to read in it every night. And then I have to answer all these questions and I have to keep track of all my papers. And that's a big deal. 
for students at that age. It's just like a, a worldview that is a, a, it's turning 180 from everything is being taken care of to suddenly what is happening? I'm getting dumped on here. I'm supposed to empty the dishwasher. I'm supposed to take out the trash. What? Like, it feels like they went from like in the fairy tales where you're a prince or you're a princess and everything is taken care of because everything is wonderful in the kingdom and there are servants and on this whole deal, which is really what childhood feels like when it's done. And then you turn and now you're suddenly the scullery lad or the girl or you're the boy that's in the stable or you're the ash lad, you know, like keeping the fire going so that the day's soup or stew is cooking without burning and you're supposed to bring in firewood or whatever it is. You're suddenly being told that it's your responsibility to do these mundane tasks that seem really beneath you or almost cruel. And it can feel like, oh yeah, that evil stepmother. My mom went from being the queen who was benevolent and always cut up all my food just the way I like it to suddenly being the, the evil stepmom going, need the dishwasher. And you're just like, what happened? And that's a lot of why those four fairy tales are structured the way they are, because it's something that, that every single person can relate to in different ways. And the other thing that's also happening is that they are trying to figure out who they are and what do they want to do in the world and who do, who do they want to be. And they can feel the pressure coming of something. At, at some point, they are now on a trajectory that is going to eventually mean that they will be out and on their own. And they can suddenly feel that, whereas up until that childhood time, they're really oblivious to that. In their mind, they're going to be playing with Legos on the living room floor with a in front of the wood stove in the winter and having hot chocolate because, and it's all just magically ha appearing for them without them having to bring in firewood or go make money to buy the hot chocolate or whatever it is. And so there's a reality that kind of comes into their lives that sometimes can be really harsh, seem harsh and painful. And for others, it might be a little bit more of a slower transition. It really just depends on the student and also their family. So what's interesting also about this is that one thing that impacts how students go through these rites of passage is whether or not they have siblings. So if you're someone who had multiple people in your family and you were, say, a middle child, you actually, as a child got to see your older brother go through that process. And then you got to see your older sister go through it. And then suddenly it's your turn and you have to do it. And so you get the benefit of being able to observe that process slightly removed. And, and it just helps because you know what's coming. So that's one thing that helps. It, it Sometimes, I guess I would say, parents are divorced. And so it's a single family household. And Sometimes children are asked at a much younger age to step up and, and help with the household's chores and things like that because there just isn't enough people to have it all done for them. For some of them, they grow up a little too, little quickly just because that's the way it is. And there's lots of variations that, of that experience that make it interesting and make it more diverse and complex. We don't really all 
have the benefit of what we had, say, maybe a thousand years ago when most families were fairly cohesive, both culturally and in in a kind of like living in a family unit in a village where not much has really changed for 500 years, you're really having a lot of consistency. And that's when a lot of those fairy tales were told. And then now we have just an incredible amount of change that is ha happening and occurring in our lives, technologically, politically, just education-wise, just the whole fabric of media and information and everything. is It's rapidly changing in a way that can be deeply unsettling. And th that's just the fabric against which we are painting our or shaping our lives. So when that occurs, it's natural for people to struggle because they can feel like we're not building this from a really stable understanding of what should happen or how should it be. And it's it, it can create a level of chaos. So that's where children are at. And it's also true that almost all these things are also happening for the adults. Now, if you're a parent, you have your children or your child and that child you've taken care of for all these years and suddenly they don't want your help putting their shoes on. They're like, I can do it myself. They don't want you to cut up their toast or they don't want you to do things the way that you have been doing them. And at the same time, you're seeing your child start to grow and change and that growth and change happens pretty rapidly. And they're, as they begin to move into that puberty stage, there's a lot of growth happening. And that is, that's pretty, pretty unnerving because we don't really quite understand it because there's a part of a lot of parents that go, hey, where did my little girl go? Where did my little boy go? How come he doesn't want to snuggle with me on the couch? How come we don't hug or how come he's trying to separate from me. She's trying to individuate. And so it's a big change and parents can feel the loss of that. And at the same time, recognize that this is a natural process and it can happen really smoothly, or it can also happen. I don't want to say, I don't want to say violently, but it, more choppy. It can be where mothers or fathers can suddenly feel like they're being like yelled at because they're smothering me or you're trying to control me or whatever, which probably is true. You probably are trying to control them in a way because you're trying to get them to do what you think is the right thing. And they are still obviously clearly children, but they're not wanting to listen to you. So there's a, like a lot of different elements that can be very explosive and very emotional. And we can begin to feel that, especially as they get further and further into that puberty stage where their hormones are just going off the charts, brain is growing in amazing ways. You can feel that there's a little bit of a powder keg going on. And it's one of the main reasons why a lot of adults feel a little bit uncomfortable around teens because they just don't know what they're going through, what they're dealing with, and they don't know whether they could just snap or whatever. I don't mean that they're super scared, but just they're at, that's not their preferred age. It's definitely a lot easier to work with third graders or fifth graders or first graders where 
If you say, let's go to the park and pick apples at the apple tree, they're just like, yay, let's go do it. And if I say that to a group of eighth graders, they're like, why are we doing this? I don't feel like apples. I don't like apples. They'll, they're now their own person in a way, and they just are going to express that potentially if they feel comfortable expressing it. And you are now no longer going to just tell them what you're going to do and what everyone is going to do, but you have to justify it and or get them on board. You have to get them on the bus. And so it's, you have to work for it a little bit. And that's, it's more work. It's challenging. So parents can feel like, oh, my child is slipping away from me. And also they're trying to do all the things to keep the families going. But, you know, at the same time, trying to go back, you know, seesawing back and forth from loving, caring, maybe smothering a little bit, then suddenly backing off and going, all right, all right, do your homework. Um, you know, if you don't get into college, it's, your, it's on you or whatever. Um, it can be a tough time for both of those people. So the, the reason I bring up the parents is that oftentimes people think of it just as a student-only experience, a child-only experience. And that's just not true that it takes two to tango kind of thing. It's happening to both of them at the same time. So I like to think of a nature program, especially a like a wilderness education program, as being a way for the children in our culture to go from really being cared for by their mother and father, or whatever, two parents, same sex, whatever it is, to move from that model to another type of model where you have the earth becoming their mother and the sky symbolically becoming their father. And what that, what I mean by that is that for millennia, as we were hunter-gatherers, the individuation process would be that Rather than having your mother or your father be able to make your fire for you, make food for you, hunt for you, trap animals for you, make your moccasins, all the stuff, you would have to learn how to do those things yourself so that you could be self-sufficient. And that is that was the goal, is to be able to say, hey, can I know all the things I need to know just on a physical level and in, a, and in, a, in an awareness type level and an understanding to be able to take care of your needs. At the same time, you also begin that process of being part of the culture and the tribe, that, that community and play, beginning to play an active role in that, which includes taking care of the older folks and taking care of the younger children and looking out for everyone because we're all in this together. And that is something that in our culture today isn't necessarily present because if you're in like, say, sixth grade or seventh grade or eighth grade, there isn't always a feeling of, hey, during my math class, am I also taking care of everyone in this room or how am I being part of that community? And if I don't do well, is that going to reflect poorly on our community and our ability to solve problems in the future or whatever. And typically it's not. It's pretty much you failed or you passed and you have to just figure it out. 
And it's really up to you to put all those things together. And most people don't really put that together. They don't really understand how learning about science or history or, or languages and art, all of those things help our culture to grow and advance. And, and we don't necessarily model that uh, because our education system is very removed from uh, the everyday life. It can seem very arbitrary. Right, we, our parents aren't necessarily sitting around the table doing trigonometry or algebra or fractions or something like that. So, because we don't see that, there's an uh, an interesting experience that happens where we just go, eh, "It's school, so I can just dismiss it. I can forget all the stuff I learned because it it didn't really matter." And that's not true. So, moving back to nature and the wilderness, here's what I love about doing this work is that when we have a student who is at that coming of age time where they're like entering into that, going from like sixth grade, beginning of seventh grade into seventh grade fully or eighth grade, there's this element of experience where they're in the journey. Fifth graders, definitely not. Sixth graders, it can take time. And some people are a young sixth grader where they're maybe not quite mature, not, they're not quite on the bus yet. And then there's some that are already at sixth grade. They're, they've been around the world. They seem very worldly and they seem older than they actually are. And so it can vary. What I'm talking about here is that when students come into our program for a nature experience, they are going to learn about how to meet their needs, not just for themselves, but also for the group. And so the, that, that stuff that was unsaid or you have to put two and two together on your own, it's actually in the wild by going on a trip like a canoe trip or a backpacking trip or whatever, you suddenly realize, hey, there's nobody coming to deliver a pizza because we're out here on the river. We're on the lake. We're on an island. We're wherever we are. So when that happens, it's not something we have to necessarily talk a lot about for them because it's just obvious to them. And they will understand that, especially the further you go on that journey. And that means that they have to take a active role in solving problems, figuring things out and doing the work that it takes to also mentally feel good, to, to be responsible for your own emotional well-being and your mental state. And these are all things that we as educators do with our students. So we can then study things like fire making and we can say, all right, number one, we're making a fire because we need food cooked and we need warmth and light and all those things. But we can also come together to each spin our turn with the hand drill or support each other in making a bow drill fire or gathering firewood so that we're all playing a part in taking care of our survival. And there's a really good feeling that comes out of it that is very soothing to us mentally, emotionally, where it can stabilize and shine a light in the darkness and keep the anxiety and the chaos and the fear away from us. So it's both symbolically a fire or a light in the darkness, and it's also a literal light in the darkness, right? So 
these are experiences that are very powerful because they are direct and they are meaningful and they provide an, an anchor point from which these people are going to build their lives. And it's real. And so they will get it, even if they don't get it really consciously. And let's be honest, a seventh grader isn't necessarily, they, they're, if you're doing this with seventh grade or eighth grade, many times they're not really in a space where they're really thinking about it all intellectually, but they can feel it. And that's the point. You're not necessarily trying to tell them this intellectually because intellectually their mind is going, Hey, where am I in the pecking order? And am I a nerd or am I, do people like me? And am I, did I hurt someone's feelings when I made that joke yesterday? Like they're really concerned about where they are in their social status and they're suddenly realizing, Oh, I've got all these feelings inside and hormonal things happening. So it's like they have certain urges and it's just a, it's a jungle going on in there. And they are trying to sort that out. If we really try to focus on just the intellectual side of things, it's you're losing the big picture, giving them the body memory and the emotional memory and the, just the experience, the sensory model of this experience of it. That is what is really powerful. So, you know, please don't try to over-intellectualize this whole thing with them. You can do it yourself and geek out on it if you want to, but it's not really critical. And that means that what you're doing is looking at creating opportunities to bring the group together through these challenges, through these learning opportunities, and through that up and down journey, which can be rocky because it's also filled with emotional outbursts and struggle because somebody might be left out of the group or somebody said something mean or whatever. And you have to navigate that and then help them to get over that or through that and see that on the other side of it, we can still be friends. You can redeem yourself if you make a mistake. Like it's not the mistakes that we make in our lives are not necessarily irredeemable. And I think that's really important because if we as a community or as a class of students or as a, an arbitrary group of students that happen to just sign up for summer camp or a forest school program or homeschooling program, there's a, often a feeling of if I say the wrong thing or if I do something that off the cuff doesn't mean anything really, really bad or negative to anybody, but somebody gets upset, then I can blow it forever. Like it feels like it's just final. It will be, I will be done. I will be canceled or I'll be dead. I'll be like, no one will want to ever be with me, whatever it is. And that might be true for a little while, depending on what you say or what you do. But the idea is that in a community, we find ways to circle back and work things out. And that's what we do in relationships. We do it in our friendships. We do it in our community. We figure stuff out. And I really believe that it is a, a difficult thing about our culture in that we seem to want to find out in our culture who was wrong and then say they are now bad and that is the end. And we want to then pour all of our blame and all of our anger and misery and frustration on that person and let them be the sacrificial person that kind of goes down with the ship. And that's not really fair to that person because 
we've all made mistakes. And so oftentimes that person's mistake and when, and the act of doing that makes everybody else in the community feel really bad, even though they're supporting it because they're like, hey, at least it's not me. But they all know that they have created a problem too in different ways, but maybe it just never really got out yet or maybe nobody found, nobody knows or whatever. And so it can be really stigmatizing and it, it if we stick to that model, it just makes everybody feel like you just have to be perfect. And that's just not how the world is. That is, unfortunately, the, it seems like the American model right now. And I just really want to urge all of you educators out there to say, hey, if you're doing these models, obviously, you're going to have behaviors that will cross the line that you will then say, all right, we got to, we got to do something else, or this is going to end right now for now, whatever. But for the most part, the more we can give, especially emotional or community-based problems that arise and allow people to come back from these things and be able to create that model, that's going to be a better model for the future moving forward for all of us. And that, to me, is, is a really important lesson. So we're going to be going into the wild with these students. They're leaving their familiar place. They're going with you, whether it's at your site, your wilderness camp, your overnight, whatever it is. And we're going into this new place to then learn how to figure these things out, whether it's sleeping in a sleeping bag or cooking their food over the fire or washing your dishes or getting along with each other, making new friends, all those things. It's all a big, giant, rich milieu, as they say, where a lot of really good things are happening. And, you know, that what's beautiful about it is that we as educators don't have to overly control it. We can allow space to happen in there so that we're not necessarily just going like, you're going to learn fire piston and you're going to learn making a bow and arrow and you're going to learn like we don't have to force a thousand things in there because they're already learning a ton of things so sometimes it's nice to have a little bit of space and see how they what can happen organically with them as well so the coming of age part moving into the forest the crossing the threshold the separation the education the challenges the initiation part of it and seeing how they do, all of that just occurs so naturally with every program that we run. So if we can then be just know that and be more conscious of that, especially for that age group, we can then begin to build out our program in a way that then helps them to integrate. Because one of the things that we really want to talk about is what are those things that actually will help them to land and build a solid foundation for becoming a young woman or a young man in today's culture. And so anything that we're doing that increases their self-reliance and their ability to care for themselves or care for others, so whether it's like cooking for themselves, cleaning, hygiene, washing, problem solving, those kinds of figuring things out like that, really important. 
self-confidence, being able to feel good because you figured out how to make a fire or get your shelter to really keep you warm or tie the right knots for making a bow and arrow or a basket or something. Those are all things that build confidence. Another one is about being able to embrace failure, knowing that, yeah, your first basket that you're making may have a lot of things that break because you're just, you didn't know what types of materials to get. And so the ones you got just didn't hold up. Or you just realize, hey, I started and I did this and my first one looks horrible and is a failure in a way, but my next one will get better. And so being able to embrace failure and look at learning as a process, not an end result, is, is really a wake-up call for, it's a good model for young people to know. And trying to do hard things, that is really critical being able to say, hey, I'm going to try this. And it looks like it might be hard, but I'm going to try it anyway. And really authentically giving it your best shot. Just being able to do that and have the choice to do that is really helpful for them. Delayed gratification. So for example, a skill like bow and drill, fire making, might look really easy when so-and-so instructor gets up there and she starts, she shows everyone how to carve it and then puts a set together, uses like perfect form has a really nice bow that she's making, spins that spindle, gets a lot of dust, makes a, makes a coal, ignites the teepee fire. All of that just looks fantastic. But when we go to do it, when we're younger, we're like, oh my gosh, there's eight or nine skills involved in this that I am going to have to learn to up my proficiency in order to be able to figure this out. And knowing that you will then try, fail, try, fail, try, learn, modify, adjust, and then eventually get it. It's an incredible opportunity to create that process-oriented learning that, that produces results but doesn't make you dependent on having to have a win every 30 seconds and to feel like you're a champion immediately after you start these are, this is the proving ground right here for life. This is, this means, Hey, like you're going to build that relationship with yourself and you're going to be able to hold the fact that, yeah, you're on day 30 of a 60 day journey to learn how to do a hand drill fire or learn how to make a pack basket or making super soft, luxurious buckskin leather but you're, you're halfway through the process and the hides are just sitting in a bucket and they look all weird. Like you're building that understanding for them in a full sensory way. And one of the other values that I'd say that these nature programs of, often have is that we offer them a little bit of a sol of solace, offering them some space and a break from the expectations of their parents, expectations in the culture, school, whatever. And so we can then say, hey, your job is to go sit by the river and just watch the water. And we're going to just do this for an hour. And you're going to have time to write your journal if you want, or observe nature, or just hang out and stack rocks or whatever, and then put them back again, obviously, or whatever. But the idea is that we're creating an opportunity for them to have some reflection time, maybe even be silly and revert back to childhood a little bit and 
to that time when they were really happy and they didn't feel like they had to like work really hard to put everything together. So I think that's where the balance comes in is that we don't want it to be all push, push and new skills. That was a lesson I had to learn because I, I could just get obsessive about that. And I didn't, I had to back away and go, mostly I figured it out, but I would just be in the middle of a program and go, I don't know why I'm going to try to teach them one more thing because they're all just like really enjoying the fact that they learned to master these three things. So why don't I just let them keep doing what they're doing right now? And, and that's how I figured it out. Hopefully we're allowing that to happen for all of these students. Another piece about this is again, that part of being part of the community and then seeing the duties of helping each other and ourselves, at, not as chores, but as opportunities and as something that we can actually really enjoy. It's a really important distinction in terms of how it's framed and how they will learn to perceive that and not turn it around and be a victim. Because basically we know that we don't want to create more victim mentality situations in our culture. We just don't need that right now. There's so many people that already are living in that reality all the time. And it just doesn't really translate into helping you get a, what you're really looking for, I think. So being able to help them to feel like they're part of something and that they're going to then get something out of it. So in other words, they're gathering firewood for tonight's fire, but they're all going to benefit from that because there's going to be stories and jokes and someone's going to pull out a guitar and we're going to uh, make something really good and we're just going to have a really nice time. And to do that, we need firewood. And being able to know that you're contributing to that so that hopefully that can carry over to doing the dishes so that the house is clean or vacuuming or doing some gardening with your family or whatever it is also is saying, Hey, I'm taking part of helping because this, this way we have a better house. We have a, we have more available to us in terms of space and how it feels and everything else. And another piece I want to mention is just this idea of when you're in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, you're starting to understand who do I want to be in the world? Like, how do I want to live my life? It's a lifelong journey. It's a lifelong searching. But they're starting to ask that question and saying, who do I want to be? And how? what could I become? And what values am I going to build, build upon for this foundation for myself? And so sometimes having a conversation about, I don't want to say warrior principles or something like that, because to me that like, I don't want it to be like, oh, blah, 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 you're a warrior or whatever. That's not always helpful in today's world because it's so easy to misconstrue what that is. But the idea is to think of what are our values and what is important to us. And this is when students then suddenly say, hey, I really love animals and I'm going to become vegan because I don't want to eat animals and I want to contribute to that. And that's an important stance to take. And if someone does that, I'm not saying that that's, that everybody should or shouldn't live by that rule, but that's an ethical and a philosophical plank that you're putting to your foundation that is something that is a principle that you may or may not be incredibly flexible with that, or I don't, I don't know. You can still love animals and also 
do a lot of other things. So it you don't want to narrowly define these things as, okay, this is good, this is bad. Like that and having it be a very open conversation as opposed to something that where you maybe have an end goal in mind of where they should get to. That's a really important distinction. So you might, if you really want to encourage that, you could probably look and say, all right, what did the, what kind of warrior meant philosophy or ethos did the ancient Greeks have Spartans or whatever. And then what about Japanese samurai or the ninja warriors, so forth, or maybe you look at the Maoris or you just look at different cultures that have different principles, whether it's like the hunting cultures of the Inuit or down in the Amazon, whatever, you look and say, what are some of those principles that they seem to live by? And you could just have discussions about that. Obviously, those principles are shaped by their culture and through thousands of years of living directly on the land in their communities. So it may not apply today for some of them, but it's worth thinking about, right? I think, for example, when it comes to like some of the cultures where, you know, oh, if you created a situation where you have brought dishonor on your family that you have to take your own life, that's probably a little bit extreme in today's world. However, it's also important to know that any of these principles can be stuck to in a way that can be really extreme and can be then manipulated or whatever the perception of that. So sometimes when we have these principles, we can lose sight of what's really important in our lives too. So I know people who we're just like, I will be a warrior and I'm going to wake up every day. And that warrior thing to go and practice their martial arts. And they were obsessed with just like going to tournaments and everything, which was great. At the same time, it their obsession with that actually really impacted how their family, the time they spent with their family and with their brother and sisters and so forth. And so it sent the message of, oh, that person, my, my brother or my cousin, whoever, they don't care about us. They only care about this one thing. And that's where we have to then look and go, all right, do we want to weigh one against the other? How do we balance these different principles and different important things in our lives? These are good discussions to have. So anyway, I have had them before, especially as it also can relate to friendship and what does it mean to be a good friend and so forth. So the, the last part I want to mention here, and obviously I could go way further into this, and that comes down to parents. How do we as educators help support parents of children who are beginning that coming of age process of becoming a young man or a young woman? And I have done this a number of ways. I've actually had meetings and sort of councils and gatherings with them after working with their students or right before working with their students. And what was really interesting about doing that is that you could see that they were aware of what was going on and they each have their own stories of their own experience and what they liked about it and what they didn't like about it. What did they like about, did their parents acknowledge that this change was happening? Yes or no. If no, then what would they have liked to have seen or done or would it, what messages would they have enjoyed knowing that their parents were caring about them and wanting to 
support them or whatever. And so it gives an opportunity to maybe heal something that they either didn't get or that they got that felt too much or not whatever, disappointing. And then create a clean slate to then say, hey, what would you all like to do? And I've been involved in that a lot over the years. And I've worked with a group of men and women talking about doing rites of passage work and saying how valuable they think it is and everything. And we worked for a year and a half. We met every week or every other week talking about this idea of doing rites of passage. And then I realized after a certain point, I realized these people just want to talk about their experiences and talk about what they think should happen, but they don't actually want to do it. And so I asked them, I said, are you guys have any intention of actually putting a date and actually offering a rite of passage experience for parents and kids? And luckily, most of them were able to say, yeah, we, we're, we're afraid of teens and we don't really see ourselves actually doing this work. And I was like, okay, you know, right on. Like, I get it. Um, and the one thing I'm going to tell you is, if you have a campfire, you invite the parents to come and share their stories and then talk about what they'd like to see with their children and maybe talk about what are some signs they've seen that their children are entering that phase and what are becoming just conscious of the whole thing. That's really awesome. And I would just urge and beseech all of you to really take this one thing to heart. And that is if you're going to do any kind of a ceremony or a experience that you're going to bring the students back from the wilderness and do something symbolic, please keep it very simple. The simpler that you do it, the more meaning it will have. I have seen parents group after parents group over the years where they, once they started getting into what they could do, they start adding things and they're like, let's blindfold them and put them in a truck and take them up this river. And then we're going to, we're going to get all these people drumming and there's going to be these giant puppet things. And we're going to create this incredible things for their kids. And I was like, your son is like a seventh grader. This is going to freak them out. And it's going to be a lot of an unnecessary stuff that will get in the way of them really receiving what you have to offer them. So please don't make it simple. And so oftentimes I will tell them, hey, you can do something just by yourself. You can just take your son or daughter and go down by the river or go to a lake or go on a hike or something or go and have a nice dinner somewhere. And then you can just share a couple things that you really like to share and then maybe give them a gift that's like a symbolic gift that represents that time. Obviously, there's you could give them a compass and be like, here's how to find your way or whatever. You can make it as contrived or whatever it is that feels good to you. It just, it doesn't, it's not about the gift. It's really about finding something that's meaningful to you and sharing that. And a lot of times parents feel like, oh, I don't know if it's enough. If my story of my experience is enough to share or my wish or hope for them is enough. And I'm going to tell you right now, it is. And it same goes for you as an educator. When you give your, those students your blessing about and your, and your approval or whatever, it is like the most soothing, nourishing balm or food that you could give anyone. It is very powerful. And you don't need to complicate it with a bunch of, I don't know, like choreography and a dancing thing and a bunch of fireworks and stuff. 
Like that's all great if you've got millions of dollars and you want to blow a whole bunch on a lot of stuff. But seriously, none of that will matter. That will all just be like, that's disgusting and gross and it's overkill when what they really want is that it's just to have that real authentic connection with you. And that can scare the living bejeebas out of you if you're, if you struggle with intimacy and you struggle with being able to be vulnerable and to share. And that's something that you can work on. There are people in the community that can do that. And if you do it in a circle of other parents, you can sometimes feel a little less one-on-one. -on -one. So these are important things to talk about. I just want to say that the gift that people do as forest educators working at this age group is really powerful. It's definitely not easy to do this work with a group of students right in front of us and all the conflicting things that are maybe happening at the time and the social stuff happening to really remember these rite of passage or initiate initiatory experiences that are underlying it. But it really did help my program a lot when I understood what was going on, these kind of internal forces that were trying to unveil themselves or reveal themselves in our students' lives. And it helped me to grow my program in such a way that it created a really beneficial experience for them and really helped set me up in a way to be able to support the parents and have a good program. So it's definitely worth the process, the time, and to understand it. If you want to learn more about this whole topic, there's a man named Michael Mead. He's a mythologist, storyteller, and he has a tremendous amount of initiatory and mythological stories and classes. Uh, many of them are free that you can go and check out. There's a number of recordings that I actually listened to back 20-something years ago, back on, on cassettes. So that's how far back it goes. And he's just really a wonderful resource. And he really helped open my eyes to what was possible and what was going on behind the scenes as well. So highly encourage you to investigate what he's all about. So the best of luck to all of you with all of your work. And this is all coming of age. It's a incredible topic. Appreciate you listening this far. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you around the campfire. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.